Well, brothers and sisters, good morning. I'm going to begin with a, a reminiscence from my school days. I went to a pretty average comprehensive school in Bromley. Quite rough, as I recall. And we did PE once a week. So in the summer, that was outdoors, doing sort of football or cricket, something like that. And in the winter, we were indoors in the gym, doing basketball or whatever it was. Now one day, and it was the winter time, I remember very strongly, very vividly, it was winter time. The teacher was rather delayed um, for the lesson. And so us boys, it was a boys' school, were left unattended in the gym. And things degenerated uh, quite quickly, got a bit noisy, a little bit rowdy. And then two of the school pupils got into a fight. Um, these were quite big lads. Um, they got into a fight and punches were thrown and one of the, one of the two received some facial damage, as I recall. Now, just then, the, the teacher walked in on the class and, uh, was quite surprised at the pandemonium going on and Im- immediately ordered all of us out of the gym to spend the rest of the, the lesson running around the, the grounds, the playing fields. And it was a big playing field. And there was quite a long time to go. It was a double lesson, I recall. So it was a long time. And the reason I remember it, it was, it was midwinter and there was thick snow on the ground. And we were in shorts and t-shirts. Now, the reason I'm giving you that example is because it's an example of collective punishment collective punishment. We were all punished because of those two. There's only two of them, and then 30 of us spent the next hour and a half in the cold. Collective punishment. Or you could say guilt by association, but that's not quite such a good description. And it feels rather unfair if you've ever been in that situation where you found yourself punished along with everyone else, not for something that you've done, but somebody else has done something bad. And there are examples of this in the Bible. And there's one in particular that we're going to think about this morning. After the wilderness journey, the Israelites were led by Joshua into the Promised Land. And they crossed the Jordan, miraculous crossing of the Jordan. And the first obstacle they came to was the city of Jericho. Jericho was a very large and fortified city, very tall walls. Seemingly it was a problem, but no, by God's miraculous intervention, the walls came crashing down after seven days marching around. They blew the trumpets and it was a great victory. The whole city was burned. They were to destroy everything, and only Rahab and her family were saved. So, so far, so good. The next town was called Ai, or I. Not sure how you pronounce it. Ai. Now, Ai seemed a much easier prospect, because it was much smaller, much less fortified, and they assumed this was going to be quite easy. 
At this point in the record, it's recorded, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. It's quite ominous. And so a small detachment of soldiers attacked that town. But to their horror, they were repelled. And they retreated after being driven back by the men of Ai. And in fact, 36 of them were killed uh, in the process. So they really did get uh, uh, a shock. That wasn't in the plan. They lost their nerve. The people lost faith. Joshua lay face down till the evening and before the Lord. And the record implies a little bit that they were at fault for not having consulted God. They, they went up without consulting God and they went up on their own initiative, just a small detachment, and they hadn't consulted God. But that wasn't really, really the problem, was it? That wasn't the reason why God had left them to uh, be defeated by the men of AI. There was a bigger problem. We read, Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Now I want you to note the plural in that. Israel have sinned, they have violated my covenant, they have taken, they have stolen, they have lied, they have put them in their own possessions. And that's a list of six, by the way, which is not without significance. It seems very harsh when you think about what the real problem was. You see, the whole community had obeyed, apart from one. Achan had helped himself to some plunder, the devoted things, and he shouldn't have done. He took the wedge of gold, a Babylonish garment, and 200 shekels of silver, and he buried them in his tent. So immediately the, there must be something a little bit curious about this, because God's attributes, among God's attributes, are his judgment and his mercy and his justice. But just on those facts, it seems a little bit inconsistent. Is the God that we worship prone to fits of rage and logic goes out the window and he does seemingly something quite excessive and disproportionate, seemingly. 
But of course, there is a lot more going on here than meets the eye, and we're going to think about that、um, a little bit later on. So we're going to come back to Aiken later on. But before we do,、um, I want us to think about how one might be influenced in one's thinking if you take the Aiken example at face value. Yes, these are literal events; they really happen. This is factual. But how we respond to this situation is—it's a matter of interpretation. We could take it several ways. Consider: suppose you were in that community. Back then in Israel, you are going to feel probably a bit aggrieved that someone else's sin is now your sin. Your position has been jeopardised by someone else. That doesn't seem fair, does it? So, in that scenario, we might start to feel a little bit. Suspicious of other people. Well, who else is going to bring me down if they're going to misbehave and it's going to reflect on me? That might make us start looking at other people、uh, a little bit suspiciously. Who else is going to get me in trouble? And in fact, you might even take it on yourself to police other people and, and go around checking, checking other people's tents, make sure no one else has got any any.、Uh, Any treasure buried in their tents, that kind of thing. It's going to make you. It's going to change the way you see others and the way you behave. <clears throat> and that kind of thinking, where you are a little bit suspicious and you you do want to interfere with others, that kind of thinking. There are examples of that in the scriptures as well.、Um, take, for example,、um, I want us to think about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, a very great man of faith and a great example in many ways. He was a leader, and so he had particular responsibility, we could say. And he lived at a time where he was very conscious that the people were returning from captivity; they'd been expelled from the land because of their sin, and now we were trying to get Israel back on track. So he's obviously very conscious. That the community needed to be right with God, and he was very keen to prevent errors and sins in the community. He stopped people carrying burdens on the Sabbath. He evicted a Moabite from the temple courts and threw out all his stuff. He shut the city gates and he threatened to arrest the traders who were coming in on the Sabbath. We read at times he became violent. He physically forced people to stop what they were doing. He was, at times, he was pulling people's beards out. He was so zealous, and latterly he forced families apart, sending away wives and children because they weren't Jewish and the children weren't speaking Hebrew. All in an effort to preserve the purity of the communi- community. So you can see by following the Achan sort of logic why he might behave like that. 
So what about us, brothers and sisters? I think it begs the question, should we be worried about others? Whether we might have an Achan in the camp? We're a community, we're spiritual Israel. With that comes privileges and responsibilities. We all have a duty for the welfare of all of us. It goes without saying that correct doctrine is imperative. That's not a matter of personal conscience. We all have a duty to preserve sound doctrine. But beyond that, should we be on the lookout for errors and flaws in others? Is it our place to be suspicious and judgmental about others? Because our own position might be undermined by the behaviour of others, we might think. And if you just take the ACAN example in isolation, you might think that that's perfectly legitimate and that's perfectly correct. If you follow that logic of one man's sin bringing down the community. But that isn't the way we should read these events. We can, in fact, put a completely different complexion on the Achan example, and I want to consider that with you now. Israel were under the law, the law of Moses. That was quite a harsh regime and it required strict obedience. But we are under a different regime in the Lord Jesus Christ. The law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And under the new covenant in Christ, the new covenant in Christ, we have a different attitude, a different mindset. So let's think back to Achan again. And I think we'll find there's more to that than meets the eye. In the case of Achan, the actions of one man brought the whole community into condemnation. And I'm sure you've probably already made the connection that this links us back to Adam. Adam, one man who brought sin on all. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. And if we see Achan like this, it begins to make more sense. And in fact, we might even say, just as sin entered the community of Israel by Achan, and condemnation through sin, and in this way condemnation came on all the community for that one man's sin. Now to people in the world outside, this whole notion doesn't make any sense. They wouldn't grasp that principle that the whole of mankind are condemned because of something that our ancestor did many thousands of years ago. So to people outside, that just makes no sense at all. It would be, to them, completely 
unfair. We don't have an issue with that, do we? We don't have a problem with that because we also know the remedy to the problem in Jesus Christ. Adam is only half the equation, and if you just focus on that bit, it all appears completely negative. Only when you see the bigger picture of God's salvation and mercy in Jesus Christ does it all make wonderful sense. As in Adam, all die. Even so, in Christ, all will be made alive. For just as through the obedience Sorry, just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The positives we know outweigh the negatives. Paul continues in Romans, Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin, The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. So if we see the bigger picture, as we do, God is not unjust. His justice is triumphant and wonderful. And that's really why we're here this morning, isn't it? To think on that salvation in Jesus Christ. So I think if we we think of Achan in these terms, and that example in these terms, we get a slightly different complexion on what lessons can be drawn. It would be very easy to condemn Achan. His sin was very obvious. His sin was indefensible. But there is another side to the coin too. Achan was also the remedy for the community. He received his punishment, death, and his death was what took away God's anger from the community. Achan was stoned to death and sin purged from Israel. The curse on all was then lifted We read, Joshua, together with all Israel, took Achan, son of Zerah, the silver, the robe, the gold bar, his sons and daughters, his cattle, donkeys and sheep, his tent and all that he had to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you brought this trouble on us? The Lord will bring trouble on you today. Then all Israel stoned him. And after they had stoned the rest, they burned them. Over Achan they heaped up a large pile of stones, which remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his fierce anger. The Lord turned from his fierce anger. Achan's death was the price for reconciliation of the community. So, as well as being a type of Adam... That metaphor 
changes to becoming a type of Christ in the destruction of sin nature and the salvation of the community. Oh, well, Jesus wasn't stoned to death, you might say. Well, no, he wasn't stoned to death, but he was crushed for our iniquities. And Jesus was made sin for us. He carried our sins, and that sin was destroyed in his death, in his victory over sin nature. And thereby we have reconciliation with God as part of the community. Incidentally, we note that Achan's family died along with him. Now, I'm sure many might say, well, clearly they got what they deserved. They shared in his sin. They must have known he had the loot in his tent. And they turned a blind eye. Well, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. We don't know. It doesn't say And perhaps his cattle, sheep and donkeys uh, perhaps turned a blind eye too. Because they got the same punishment. But if we see Achan as a type of Christ, of Christ's work in destroying sin in the flesh, we know that Christ's family are buried with him. Not to their condemnation, but to their salvation. So I think if we see these events in these terms, it puts a a different complexion on these events and what conclusions to draw from them. We are not in Adam. We are not under the law. We are in Christ, who has redeemed us from the law of sin and death. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. No condemnation, justified by faith, peace with God and access into this grace. This is a very different scenario from being condemned for being in the camp of Israel. The reverse. Just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing of water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. I think we could sum it up like this. Under the law... God dealt with Israel as a group to their condemnation. In Christ, God deals with spiritual Israel as a group, but to our salvation. It's a very different climate in which we live. 
So there's no reason for us to be preoccupied with others, any perceived wrongs we might see, because being part of this community is not going to bring us down. It's to our salvation. Christ has given us and encouraged us to have a very different attitude. Judge not lest ye be judged. Why look at the mote in your brother's eye? By what measure ye meet, so shall it be meted to you. Love your neighbour as yourself. And none of that really works if we have a suspicious and judgmental, judgmental attitude of others. Paul says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are yet condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, it could be said that we are seeing a decline in standards in these perilous times. And in some ways we are. Are we seeing our ecclesias in their final death throes? Or, on the positive side, as we get smaller, are we not more close-knit and a much more loving and inclusive community? I think there's lots of positives to be drawn from our situation. So let me just conclude then with something to bring us to the emblems. Adam brought sin into the world and with it came collective punishment. Jesus, of Adam's nature, tempted in all points as we are yet without sin, has overcome and has given his life to turn away the Lord's anger. And so together as a community we share in that salvation. Paul writes, this mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Jesus has given his life to turn away the Lord's anger. And we share in that salvation, buried with him. And so we shall live with him when he comes.